The more you learn, the more you realise there is still to learn. This is Sparking Connections, a podcast where two education enthusiasts teach each other about their respective fields of study. My name is Kimberly Wardle, and I have a degree in microbiology from the University of Surrey. And my name is Esme Beaumont, and I'm currently studying for an MPhil in English Studies at the University of Cambridge. This is part two of our episodes on Talon, Ukva, Orbis Tertius, and will not make sense unless you have listened to part one, so go do that first. Okay. And there was something else that I wanted to get to, which is one of the more difficult things we've discussed on the podcast mm-hmm. in terms of technical jargon. But right. it is not as difficult, in my opinion, as the detection matrix stuff we were discussing okay. in episode, gosh, when was it? Episode past. <laughs> a past episode. <laughs> so basically, I wrote an essay on this on this theory mm-hmm. uh, back in my third year at uni. And it was an essay for a module called Language and Literature, which is about the field of stylistics. Mm-hmm. Now, I was quite excited to be able to talk about this story here because although I am uh, about to self-plagiarise this essay. <laughs> no, you're going to reference yourself. Yeah, yeah. So Because of the <laughs> nature of the essay and the nature of the subject, I could not uh, get into any of the fascinating stuff we've just spent 45 minutes talking about. Mm. But this particular section I do think is really interesting. So stylistics is the application of linguistics to literature or the field of linguistics that deals with literary context. Mm. So there is this word, focalization. You will have come across this concept before, but probably not for the precise language. Mm-hmm. So focalization is about the perspective from which the story is told. Mm-hmm. It's about whose consciousness is perceiving the world around them. Who are we, whose head are we in, basically? And so here's some terminology that's going to be useful. Uh, the the focalizer is the person perceiving the events of the story. Right. So for the bulk of Harry Potter, that is Harry Potter himself, right? Mm-hmm. That when yeah when when J.K. Rowling writes Hogwarts is a massive castle, mm-hmm. it is implied that this is Harry's opinion, yeah. that, that Harry is the one looking at Hogwarts and going, wow, that's a really big castle. Because Harry's <laughs> a small boy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I hate that we use Harry Potter for every example, but because everyone else uses Harry Potter for every example, it's just it's the thing that comes to mind for example. Yeah, and also <laughs> a lot of people are familiar either through the books or the films, so yeah. it's just a very yeah. standard way of making sure everyone's on the same page. It's the standard currency for, <laughs> like... <laughs> literature examples for sort of non-literary topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are different types of focalization. There is zero focalization in which the narrator says more than any of the characters know. Mm-hmm. So if I were to, gosh, pick a different book. I'm going to be saying Lord of the Rings. There you go. If I were to, if 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 the narrator were to say, what Frodo didn't know was that yeah. things were about to go very wrong, like um series of unfortunate events. Yes, yes, definitely. Fantastic. Fantastic. Definitely a zero, what, zero focal, uh, zero focalization mm-hmm. example. There's internal focalization in which the narrator shows us what a specific character sees, either from their point of view, so fig, or from more than one character's point of view, variable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can give an example. 
I think the ethics person, it, it, that, that's variable. It's from different characters' perspectives. Mm -hmm. So we're usually in the head of either Cora Seaborn or Will Ransom or um, what's her friend's name, Luke something, mm -hmm. the doctor. Then there's external socialization in which the narrator says less than a character. Characters are going about their business and the narrator is not in their heads and doesn't know why they're doing that. Right. These are internal uh, and external socialization are types of attenuated socialization, which is basically when the people in Christmas don't think. So we don't know everything, mm -hmm. basically. Zero socialization, you might count it. You might call that the omniscient narrator. Right. Uh, that's like the, the more usual, less jargony term. Mm -hmm. An internal would be like first person, potentially. Well, not necessarily first person. First person is just when it's I, me, etc. Mm -hmm. But internal socialization can be, you know, he thought this, she wondered about this, or whatever. Yeah. So a uh, aspect of socialization, the word that keeps interrupting, is this thing called modality. Modality comes in three main categories. Epistemic modality, deontic modality, and Boulomaic modality. And that's all we have um, time for this week? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 okay, explain these to me. Yes. Epistemic modality is about degrees of certainty. Okay. Deontic modality is about degrees of obligation and duty. Mm -hmm. Boulomaic modality is about degrees of desire. So these are all modality on the psychological plane. Right. So this like over there. There are multiple planes of socialization, like spatial, which is, you know, space, mm -hmm. tem temporal, so time, mm -hmm. ideological, which is defined by Bruce Simpson as the way in which a text mediates a particular ideological belief to either character, narrator, or author, and then psychological, where the authorial point of view relies on an individual thinking from the perspective. Mm -hmm. Epistemic is the difference between, I know that Kim has blonde hair, versus I seem to remember that Kim's hair is blonde, versus what colour is Kim's hair? <laughs> <laughs> right. Deontic modality, degrees of obligation. So I must record this podcast versus I should record this podcast, mm. for example. You know, mm -hmm. Kim wants me to record this podcast, you know, and therefore I will because you're my friend or whatever. Like right. those sorts of uh, those sorts of phrases, I guess. Boulomaic modality is degrees of desire. So that is, I want to record a podcast. I don't want to do my homework. I, mm -hmm. I feel like eating an apple. I, oh God, what else? <laughs> those sorts of things. So these come from Greek terms. I don't know whether this helps anyone remember the definitions. It's what helped me with it, but I already knew these particular words. Um, you'll be familiar with epistemic in terms of epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Deontic uh, comes from the same root as the Greek phrase uh, or word dei, I might be mispronouncing that, which is the dei is it is necessary, we'd use it before an infinitive, and boulomai is uh, I want or I wish in uh, Greek. So that's where those phrases come from when I think of these acronyms. <laughs> so in the Google folder that I asked you to make sure you had access to. Yes, and I'll make sure everyone else has access to it as well. Yep, there are several documents yeah and what i would like you to do is open the one that says blank extract i can do that it is open cool so what i have done in a separate document which you can look at in a second for me is annotate an extract with various sort of levels of uh first we'll look at epistemic modality so i've separated this basically into strong epistemic modalities 
moderate or ambiguous epistemic modalities and the supersetting sort of modalities. Mm -hmm. This is something that exists kind of on a plane or on a spectrum. It isn't about like this is an this is always an example of these epistemic modalities right. or this is always strong. It's about things being stronger or weaker in relation to each other. So if you look at extract one, mm -hmm. uh, which begins on page twenty seven and ends on page twenty eight, I chose short extracts just because <laughs> um, <laughs> do you see, like, if you just sort of skim through that, do you see any examples of particularly strong epistemic modality or ep or particularly weak epistemic oh modality? Gosh. I'm getting I'm getting flashbacks to school. Um, <laughs> okay, so hang on, we might just go over. So modality, we're looking at modality. Yeah. Remind me what epistemic modality is. Epistemic is about degrees of knowledge and certainty. Strong epistemic modality is I'm very sure about this thing. Okay. Weak epistemic modality is no idea, I'm confused. <laughs> um, so the house which we had rented furnished had a set of this, so he's saying that there these books are definitely true. The volumes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Volumes of books that they're trying to find Akbar in, I think, yeah? Yeah, he sounds pretty certain about that. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry if I missed some, but that was the story that I saw. No, because this um, is interesting. So it says that the, I don't know how to say it, Heresiarch? Heresiarch? Yeah, Heresiarch, that thing. That, his name was not <laughs> Basically like a heretic. So he doesn't know the heretic's name. So that would be like a weak yeah. form of whatever, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be weak epistemic. Epistemic modality. Epistemic yeah. modality, yeah. I couldn't say heresiarch and epistemic reality <laughs> <laughs> in the same sentence. There's too many syllables. Um, so, would he had recalled copulation and mirrors are abominable? That's fact to him. Mm -hmm. So, that's not necessarily. I, mm, I don't know yeah. if that would be particularly strong. It's not weak, but it's also not strong. It's in the middle. Okay. Because yeah. he's saying it's certain to him, but it's only him that's recalling it. Yeah. Not like the house furniture that everybody else is claiming to think. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the general, this part is generally like, he's certain that Akbar is a thing, mm, okay. but no, there's no evidence of it. Right. So, well, he's, yeah, he's certain that there's evidence, but they've read the books and there is no evidence of, of Akbar. Right. So, okay. If you want to maybe keep the blank one open in a mm -hmm. in a separate tab, but open the um, the one labelled epistemic modality, so you can see what I'm looking at. Okay. What's interesting is that actually I'd say that most of this is pretty strong. Okay. To the extent that I haven't bothered highlighting examples of strong epistemic modality, because I think it's all pretty strong, okay. except for a couple of places where I've labelled it as moderate or ambiguous. And it's interesting because you pointed out. Uh, the name of the heresiarch was not forthcoming, mm -hmm. which if he was to say the name of the heresiarch is not forthcoming, I would completely agree with you that it's weak epistemic modality. Mm -hmm. He's saying, I don't know the name. Because it's in the past, this is where it's interesting and ambiguous, because I'd say mm. that that is strong epistemic modality. He is saying, at the time, I did not know. Right now, I know for sure that I didn't know. Right. There's an example that begins, I conjectured that this documented country and its anonymous heresiarch were adjacent to the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Now, 
if he were to say, I conjecture that, mm. it would be we, or we've heard and the rest of this. Right. But it's in the past. He's very certain that this in the past he made a conjecture. It's again, it's I suggested at the time, and I could have been wrong at the time, but right now I know that I did conjecture. I did. It's equivalent to the saying, I wasn't sure. I, I am not sure would be the hypothetical reality, but I wasn't. I am sure that I wasn't sure. You know? Right. Yeah, so I think the conjecture statement or the conjecture sentence is interesting because if he were to make no conjecture in the present, mm-hmm. it would definitely be weaker as to hypothetical causality than the rest of the extracts. Yeah. But because it's in the past, he is certain right now that he did make make a conjecture, if that makes sense. Right. So I'd say it's still stronger. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's somewhat up to interpretation. Like a lot of the extracts in Sacred Hymns. Okay. I like looking at them because they do prove extension or causality in different cases, precisely because of the fact that they could be That I that I think is interesting is in the final paragraph when he says Jehoshaphat's name was not forthcoming, so there wasn't no conjecture. If he made the inquiry, almost I don't think those were needed, though perhaps it can mean this. The word perhaps I think would signal weaker than perhaps, okay. like in general. Okay. Kim definitely has blonde hair versus Kim perhaps has blonde hair. Right. So I do think that there's. You can still read it as fairly strong. And I don't think he's entirely saying, I don't know if it was inferior. I think he's more saying it was inferior in my opinion. Like, it's just a mark of politeness and humility. But I I still think it is slightly weaker than the rest. Okay. If you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So what about the compositions? Is there anything that strikes you as weak in any of the compositions or weaker? Exactly. So it's definitely 
even with abandoned friendships mm-hmm. but I don't think that as Christians that we're doing it to just break one person's heart out yeah but again this is all my opinion I am sure that some people have had different experiences with different linguists um, if there are any actual linguists listening god knows why but please feel free to talk to me <laughs> Yeah, an example of very strong anti-Semitism analysis is this system is entirely corrupt in its application to the earth, but entirely faulty in theology. I don't think there was any way you could make that more clear. No, this this like he really <laughs> definitely knows that. <laughs> He's like this bit finally connects. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the final paragraph, the very long paragraph, um, their language and the derivations of their language. Uh, religion, like separating the specific cultures from the realism up until the language that is strong to know the linguistic framework analyses and those that are anti-Semitism as well. Very strong anti-Semitism analyses with decisive information from the context that therefore knows the source, right? Yeah. Like, this is what the Wikipedia page says. No doubt. <laughs> These are the facts. I am Wikipedia. Yeah. Extract three. So the, oh, I'll explain the extracts. The first one is just the very beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. Extract two is a section that highlights the Talmudic. We've already discussed it. It's to do with the language. Mm-hmm. Extract three is from the very end. Um, extract is the last section. Bottom of page 41, page 42. Um, so would you like to take that one away? Asserting that there is a Pentateuch and that oh, the Bible okay. is inspired. Yeah. He is certain about the fact that it is. However, later afterwards, the phrase, the latter is most likely, it leaves room to read it wrong. He doesn't say it is the latter. Okay. He says the latter is most likely, mm-hmm. which means it kind of looks very circumstantial and slightly impolite, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because that entire section from even today is most likely. Like, I agree with you, that is his thinking. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it is probably stronger than explicitly mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess, so you're certain that there is other versions of this? Yeah, he isn't saying, I am uncertain, he's saying, he's kind of saying other people are uncertain. <laughs> yeah, okay. But then in saying the latter is most likely as opposed to the latter is better, that kind of implies to him that there is a little bit of uncertainty. So he is fairly sure, but not completely sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, more uses than notes, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps it is a reference to another Jewish figure now. It could be, but not sure. Yeah. And then he was also unsurfing. I mean, nothing. Yeah. I mean, we know nothing about the surfing culture. Yeah. Not even that. That's another thing I want to talk about. Oh, yeah. So he's saying, like, we don't even know if this... This is going to happen. Yeah. But I can make another interesting point. Mm-hmm. He is uncertain. You're right that it is he. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still think it is slightly less interesting than it would be if he had said a past of which I know nothing about. Yeah. 
But then could he have just been using Gore because he wants to include everybody else in things that he doesn't know? Oh, totally, yeah. And I think I, I do think you're saying that he doesn't know. Right, okay. But I think there's just this, this implication that it's that the information should be conveyed to everybody. Right. Rather yeah. than that it's specifically it's sort of like Stephen I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like there's a difference between we don't know if they're being biting on Mars versus I don't know if they're biting on Mars. Right, okay. Like collectively general knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But you are right that it's the only other two things I would have tagged are it's a reasonable to imagine in the uh, short paragraph it is reasonable to imagine that we were looking for another planet that didn't exist but didn't do well mm-hmm. slightly weaker does not say that it is existent does say that it's potentially going to be it's like an assumption yeah. yeah so he's more certain than perhaps one could have been but it's less certain than could have been right and later Elizabeth after a passing trip to Terra Nova says it's sort of this our forecast is almost an error. Which yeah. admits the possibility of error, but in this context I think it sounds more like she's being precise mm-hmm. than that she's losing ground to it. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to say for sure. Like the words themselves in isolation are definitely weaker or bleaker as a chemical analogy. Mm-hmm. But in the context it's like it's a bit like asking a question and then answering it. It's right. kind of like being sort of politely like, well, if I'm not wrong, and it's like, mm-hmm. if you thought you were wrong, you wouldn't be saying it. <laughs> right. That kind of situation. Okay. So to summarize Eckerd's Dungeon Mode analogies, it is when you are making assumptions, you're not completely sure in your statement, you're asking a question that you never really reach an answer to. Kind of, yeah. Um, basically. What we're teaching. Yeah, in this case. Yeah. Because it's down to human guesses, you would think of it as a spectrum from very sure to completely unsure. Like something that is wrong as a chemical analogy is very sure, something that is wrong as a chemical analogy is completely bulletproof. Mm-hmm. You might be anywhere on that spectrum. So if we look at the Linnaean scale, there's no point in looking at those because there are people who are pretty freely any that I could find, at least not in these extracts, that has such a reason for this. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really talk about this at all, so I won't get I won't get into it here. But <laughs> for all these occasions in which he does not talk about <laughs> right. the Linnaean analogy, again, there is very little. Spoiler alert: there's not much. But what there is, you might still find. You know what there is is good. So as a reminder for what to do with the Linnaean modality, the it's Linnaean. about the reason for science. It's about what you want. So if I'm asking, if I say I really want to do something, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. If it's sort of, there's some implication that it shouldn't be something, but it isn't like a big thing, mm-hmm. then it's wrong. So as a good example, perhaps we should go outside. Is like, I wouldn't be saying that if I didn't believe that the subject wants to go outside. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's that that's sort of reasonable to Lenin modality mm-hmm. versus... I really want to go outside, which is wrong. Wrong as a chemical analogy. Okay. And should we, I was wrong, there are one or two kind of chemical analogies. But again, wrong in perhaps being enough to do Mm -hmm. something. Like reasonable, I think you should do something, but it's that reasonable. Mm -hmm. So if you've got the blank extracts in front of you, 
and then they get the um, the one they will feel the most fulfilling and compelling um, mm-hmm. after sort of ten times of grinding and hustling and mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty good. Okay. Um, well, I thought that I was reading this this last one while you were giving me the <coughs> refreshing the definitions of what I needed to know. Yeah. And I thought that the I must confess that I agreed with some assumption didn't um, really nail it. But then you said the must is a, a thing that you have to do rather than the other thing, right? Yes. So So I so is yes. it it's only the other one, it's only the doing. No, I'd say it's probably both. Um oh. so okay. he is he must confess, but he doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. So that's on the feeler merit modality. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be the doesn't want to. Okay. I can kind of, I can kind of feel whether it's that whether strong and deep conviction that he needs to do this, how much obsession yeah. or how much or how much emphasis is on it. Like I don't yeah. know whether if he loving really, and hating really is didn't. on the same. Yeah. That might yeah that might be strong, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure about that. I would have to. Because um, must be very strong on the negative thing. Oh no. Yeah, like I must confess. Yeah. Is like I really don't want to confess, but I must, right? Which is kind of negative. And you yeah, know. and this sudden discomfort. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, this is some discomfort in the past. In the past, you know, now, mm-hmm. potentially uncomfortable to confess, but that's kind of been obliged. Mm-hmm. But also, yes, it is very much like because he is obliged to confess, like morally obliged. So yeah, mm-hmm. okay. that would be an example of both of them. I feel like that's a bad example to say that, but fair. Because I'm trying to, like, set aside (laughs) the definition. Just in my head, I should do something for someone to confess. That is fair enough. Okay. So I should like to see that answered. Ah, see, okay, this is one of those things that we learn quite easily in ways that are not (laughs) their literal meaning. Right. Think about what they're saying rather than the individual sentence or the word. Okay. So, you know, I should like to see that answered means I would like to see it sorted out. Yeah. But I should see that answered regardless, I should, rather regardless of if I want to or not, right? Right, okay. So this one would be doing. Yeah, so that's feeling merit. He is saying that he would like to confess, yes. Okay. I don't know, I don't know. I'm not super... <laughs> Super confident how to distinguish between them both. Okay, um, shall I take the ones that I spotted? Yeah, do you want to? Very first sentence. I owe the discovery of this vase of information to Amir and his protection of the stone. Okay. It's. I wouldn't necessarily consider it strong, even though to owe something to be obliged is like the definition of being <laughs> technodalitic. Um, but because it's sort of a, you know, I it's sort of his way of saying I am obliged. You know where you say, like, I... I acknowledge that this yeah. is how I got here. Yeah, when you cite an article, mm-hmm. when you're writing an essay and you cite an article, you are obliged, like, morally obliged, mm-hmm. or obliged according to the convention of natural society to inform the reader that you are using an idea from the material. That's kind of what's happening here. Yeah. But, like, there isn't a sense of obligation. It's not, obli- it's not obligation in the sense of, like, I must say anything that I need to say, or, you know, I must to you, I owe this discovery. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just to 
people that are not people that like to think about things and stuff like that. Absolutely. You can sit and buy. But still, I would say it's still a Because asking a question implies a desire to be asked one. Mm-hmm. But then there's nothing else there, really. Just the desire. I do even think of myself if I asked him, he would assume oh. a desire for me. So yeah. he wouldn't have asked me this question. Yeah. Um, so that's all in that extract. Okay. Do you want to go through the next one? Uh, yeah, I can try. <laughs> there is, in fact, only one paragraph that contains anything that I consider worthy of annotating.
So they included words like here versus there, now versus then. Technically, you could probably consider I and you, like they could say I and you, so mm -hmm. they've also referred to things like or objects and shapes in that order. This versus that, this versus that. Those sorts of words, right? Mm -hmm. In contrast, you've got words called adjuncts, which were um, which go then as place and direction, but not necessarily in relation to the narration. So adjuncts would be like up and down over an object, yeah. whereas directions would be, you know, here and there. Where words that like yeah. don't mean anything unless I am pointing at something okay, or like yeah. gesturing, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you can if you can repeat a sentence and imagine me pointing at something as I say a word, then it's probably deixes. Whereas if it's yeah, deixes is the noun deixes in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Whereas an adjunct makes sense whether you're in relation to a person, a place, or an object. So I can say, the cat jumped over the bush, and you know the over means over, wherever, wherever you're in. Yeah. You know, you can be standing on, on earth looking up at the moon, or you can be on a cliff looking down at the moon, and the cat still jumped over the bush. It doesn't yeah. change the place okay. of where you're standing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you are if you are standing on the moon and the cat jumped onto the moon and you go the cat jumped here yeah you couldn't say that if you were in that place you would then say the cat jumped there yeah that's a weird example but that's that that was a good no i liked it i liked it i think it's clever <laughs> so now i'm going to make it less clear right. by talking about um, a theory that i really like which is the carl huber method mm -hmm. um, although like a foreskin. That's how I picture it. Yeah. Your deictic field is your frame of reference. And your deictic center is basically you, but it pops the first place you say I yes at. Where you are. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you had a graph of like time and space and plotted yourself on it, that is your deictic field. Okay. So when I say um, this would be easier if we were in the same room. <laughs> but if I am... Um, I mean, to describe okay. it to the podcast listeners, it's probably a good <laughs> thing that we're not. Well, yes, that's true. But okay, so we are currently in different rooms. When yeah. I say here, what you do unconsciously, according to Huber, is you mentally project your deity center into mine. Whoa. So that you are sort of looking out of my eyes. And so that when I say here, you know that I mean where I am entering it right now, not mm -hmm. where you are here now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I lose my belief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit like when I say to the left, no, no, I mean to my left. Mm. It's that sort of, it's that thing mm -hmm. where, or when you're talking to someone and they say, oh, which way to the station? And you're going, oh, it's to the... Oh, to the left where you go, and then you turn around and yeah. you're facing the same way they are, and say, no, no, okay, no, it's to the right. 
but you have the location because there's the corridor. So that mm. means you you're assuming it's a corridor that he can see. <laughs> that is where he is, not where I am and where my location is. <laughs> yeah. Because definitely from the remote depths of the corridor, that implies it's quite far away. Right. Either it's a long corridor or it's a really long, dark corridor. Right. But it's, yeah, from the remote depths of the corridor, it's definitely closer to where he is. I think I have that I think I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> There's not very much space to go into. This is a very intellectual and sort of like information heavy kind of story. And we already said it, so we don't get like an essay. Yeah. So basically they're giving you a story of things that are just intellectual things that you need to put together that could just fit that. Yes. Especially if there's a lot of action. Right. Yeah, you're trying to put yourself in that place and see if you're going to do any of what they're saying or not. Or the things that are happening. Yeah, because you're describing the character walking down the street and describing what they can do. But it's going to be like, yeah, in the distance there was the Tower of London, but closer up there was this building, and you mm-hmm. can see all this. And to um, to their left was um, a pigeon, and to their right, a little bit further away, was a, a bin. I don't know. Yeah, and they were like, a car came towards me, or a bus was coming exactly, towards yeah. me. Exactly, yeah. Yes, as the bus came towards him, and then as the bus went away from him, they came from separate yeah. locations. Yeah. So it's how we look at temporal variations. Okay. There's a bit more of that, if you want to look at the annotated version of the article. Yeah, so it's a similar, so it's similar language, proximal and distal, proximal being now, distal being back then. So further away into the time, the more primitive things. Okay. So, um, so the first bit, I overly focused on that because it seemed like it was easier. Yeah. So would it be things in like the car tense? Yes. Yeah. So became. Yeah. I we became mentally engaged with that happening. Uh huh. Yeah. The mirror troubled the depths of the corridor. Yeah. He has to confess he's doing that now. Yeah. And then he confessed. Oh, the following day. Mm-hmm. And before that, I conjectured. Mm-hmm. What about that I could like to see? Yeah, that's, that's like the one. planning. He wants to see it, but he hasn't yet. Or he's going to see it? Yeah, so he is saying, in the past tense, I told him that I would like to see it. Mm-hmm. So he did that before. By the time, yeah, by the time he's writing it, he has seen it. Right. Yeah, the then next sentence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the next sentence says, a few days later he brought it, so he has now seen it. Right. So I'd say the whole sentence is somewhat distal, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff in the past. But that's also hypothetical. Making it hypothetical makes it a bit more ambiguous. Yeah. Mm. So either way, it's all in the past. Okay, yeah. So he he wanted to see it, and now he's seen it. So the whole thing is he's already seen it. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of, like, past tense things. Yeah. Makes sense if, if you're interested in something happening in the past. Me. 
event. If you look at the Indiana Pacers, what they do is they take their
is mentioned in Psalm 90. Mm-hmm. And I want to also talk about the term as Jairus, because this is something that we talk about and we're not really talking about it enough. Yeah. And when when we look at this situation, we just think it's simply a boy being sick out. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of doesn't really, you know, it's like I went to the shop and I bought a copy of the script, as opposed to I walked through the front door mm. to my left was a book and it said sick. <laughs> wow. This is what you do in an essay. Mm. I think in an essay, really trying to make a statement that is, is, is acknowledgeable and objective. Yeah. Yeah. It's like very knowledgeable and it's not that you won't cite other people. You know, it's not that you can say I am better than other people. Mm-hmm. You're saying I know what happened. Here's a few information. Let Here's me impart it onto you. <laughs> yeah. And actually, there is a section, we talked about something that had happened to me. Mm-hmm. So, um, a copy of A Tale from Sunday School came in the slot, mm-hmm. uh, volume 11. And it says, I began to experience an experience of an astonishing urge to even refer to it. I shall not describe, because this is not the story of my emotion, but of the scars and sorrows I went through. And I think she actually did a lot about why there is so little therapy and so mm-hmm. little, uh, so little parental or numeric modality. Because this is not the story of the narrator's emotion. No, he's got a specific thing he's trying to say with regards to this girl. Precisely. Mm-hmm. Like, look, here are the facts. This is what happened. Here are the implications. Here are mm-hmm. some philosophical things. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. We don't need to go into stuff. I, I do not recommend going into stuff like this at all. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people can find it distressing. Then again, the little bits that you get is that she's quite self absorbed. Mm. Interesting. We don't get to really read much of it because it's something that she has brought up. Yeah. I guess you need those things in stuff, though, to make this a more like reliable account or a reputable account. Because if he was just, I'm going to sit down right now and tell you this story, you, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. But, but the fact that he's like, I, I looked into it, searched collected this information and you know it kind of made him a someone who really did care about people like me yeah definitely so there is one other thing that i thought would be interesting to talk about it's another aspect of stylistic the linguistic approach Mm -hmm. which is speech pronunciation this is the last thing on my ability to write a long book So Peter Shotwell writes that direct speech, for example, creates the illusion of a perpetual dexterity of the world around us. The direct speech is the one that we're faced with. There is a recording store and the ambulance and the the utterance that Chris uses to say is quoted directly from the person you hear. So, for example, I like this song. Mm-hmm. And 
the exact words that she said are, I love you. That's the most basic. So if you were to just write in Greek marks, I like your socks, and you leave it implied, would it really please you better? That would be really tiring. <laughs> or she said, I like your socks, without any quotation marks, that would be great. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of that left in there. No. <laughs> just checking. Not a whole lot. I'm, I'm just banking on that. Yeah, we can go through and uh, look at the Yeah. Um, 
，第二天他是一个人，他也没有人跟我一起来的。我讲过这样的故事。嗯、um, ，Yeah， I don't think you have to tell me in the private anymore. I think that's a good thing. 好，这是一个很自然的一个过程。
So that, I mean, only actually I think two that we haven't discussed. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting that there are two examples. Yeah, yeah. One is an example of uh, free and direct, mm-hmm. or at least I think it is. So the Heresiarch name is not forthcoming, but there was a notion that formulation of words or also their meanings was sort of going to happen in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Which is free and direct is such part of what Kadarus told him. Like given the previous sentence, mm-hmm. he says, "So he told you he had before him the Ark of the Royal Star." The Heresiarch's name was not forthcoming, so there wasn't any fulfillment. If if Kadaris is saying all of that to Vorhez, and Vorhez mm-hmm. is coming at it, then that's free and direct. But it could maybe be narrative importance to do that, if that is the kind of web yeah. theory that Jack has set, right? Yeah. And then straight after that, he had recalled, copulation and mirrors are abominable. So it looks like direct speech, right? Mm. It looks like free direct. There's a report on God, he has a speech. There is a phrase, copulation and mirrors are abominable. So they exist, mm-hmm. not forbidden, but you would assume that that is direct speech. So that is, you know, what was said and decided on. Yeah. But just before that, there is the sentence, Moisidarus recalled that one of the hierarchs of the Hutzar had declared that mirrors and copulation are abominable. So it might be that he directly represented Kadaris' speech and that previous one mm. was what he actually said and this is now the same thing. Or it could be a representation of how the narrator initially said it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a little bit ambiguous. But do you feel that that's how he said it or it could be how he normally talked about it or it could be a combination of all of those things that Jack has just said where he is quoting it or he's just summarising it? Yeah, exactly. Was he quoting Kadaris directly in the beginning? If he was, is he now quoting Kadaris again, or is he quoting his own quote? <laughs> <laughs> right. And if not, if he was just, if he was indirect before, is he now quoting his own quote, or does he just happen to use the same phrase? <laughs> like, yeah. It's a little bit ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But overall, you'll notice that I've highlighted indirect speech, indirect uh, exists, and mm-hmm. there is majority speech. Yeah. And if you go into the other extracts, which are these sentences here, there is, there is one. Yeah, there are two examples of direct speech in the final extract, um, both of which are individual words in the Kodesh Kodesh. Mm. And in both cases, or in the first case, the exact Hebrew reading has no preference for the translation of the Hebrew script, fine. So in that case, we are quoting the Hebrew passage in French, it's all the same fucking thing. That, that's how that's written. Yeah. And the other one, already received has been invoked by the conjectural primitive, primitive language of the Shofar. Which is direct speech if primitive language isn't discriminating against words. Mm-hmm. It could apply to dissonant words because you think they can't, but it isn't really strongly dissonant. Like, like it's not a, not a thousand percent about that. Right, right. And there's, you'll see the bit highlighted in yellow that I think is probably free direct because it says, perhaps it is, but in accordance with divine law, I translate from human law, the Moshiach grasp. It would, it doesn't look like it's free until he says, I translate from human law, because he's then translating divine law. Well, if he's just meant to say in human, if his, if the way he naturally words it is from human law, why would he say divine law in the first place, unless he's quoting someone else? Right. You know, it's sort of implied it's not his own word. So I think that would probably count as or free and direct, probably more than free and direct, but it's kind of ambiguous, right? Mm-hmm. But overall, 
we see the second director of Dead Eagles and the first has quite good excuses but it can basically be the narrative before she comes back or inside out mm-hmm. whether it's true or not true what kind of effect do you think that has on how we perceive the story how we perceive Nicola Baker was she being told she's a bad director anything like that can you give me any hints so for some less there's less references to Steve but to me kind of feels like he did all the talking at the start and like he let Steve listen from others and from the things that he was told and then as you get later on he kind of doesn't need that because he's just walking in the room from what he's told and what he's been looking into and reading into quoting so I guess the the fact that you have like director Steve Fuller at the start and the now and you need more narration you need more like just a sort of summarizing so when he says we became mentally engaged in our time of meeting Bart yeah he's like summarizing all the the bits and the bobs that you need to sort of contextualize what he wants you to kind of read into it I think yeah which I think makes him a bit more reliable as a narrator yeah it's interesting someone coming to a conclusion because he's not just going these are the facts as I see them. He's like, I gained these facts and these are the information I got from this guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's definitely one way of looking at it. Mm. But I think I sort of take the opposite view of the okay. because of the prevalence of indirect statements and mm-hmm. narrative reporting. Because if I were to quote somebody directly, you know precisely what they've said and you know that I'm going to infer it from what they've said. Or at least oh, you have to I trust that. Like, technically, I could be lying. But <laughs> sort of, like, outright lying. Right. If I say, um, go back to the example we had before, I like the song. Yeah. Mm. She says the phrase, I like the song. But you know what she's saying. You know I'm not just assuming or whatever. Yeah. Like, those, that is what she's saying. Or if you make it indirect and you say, she said that she liked the song. She might have said, I mean, it's okay. And I just said, right. like the song. Or she might have said, I absolutely love this song, oh my god. And then you say, oh, did she like the song? And I say, yeah, she said she liked the song. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, technically that's not false, but it's definitely not true in what she's literally said, right? Mm -hmm. Because she's just much more enthusiastic. Right. So here, um, and narrative reporting, in fact, involves even more infiltrating, because I'm just summarising what she said, right? Oh, she talked about the song. Well, maybe she just says, actually, the you know, maybe the conversation is actually about other things, but I've chosen to focus on these things to pass on to the readers thinking about these things. Yeah. But actually, she says a more important bit of the conversation is something else she's talking about. Mm. When he says, we became mentally engaged in a Bart and Belletta, maybe Cesaro wouldn't call it a Belletta. Maybe he'd say, oh, it was just a really small part of the conversation. Mm. Or he might, you know, he might say, well, it wasn't Bart. You weren't like inventing everything, Ben. You know? But then the fact that he's saying that he had a conversation that he only went to Tor, like to me suggests that he at least has given it more thought than or like extended its like discussion beyond what he went to Tor. There's more to it that he talked about before he went to Olympia with them. Right. Okay. I don't think we should be discounting that. No. I think that can be. True. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think that can be true. But there's also. Maybe it just says that she's fairly subversive, that mm. she doesn't need the quoting. You know, if you're writing right. an essay and you're like, I know I read somewhere someone said something, but I'm going to quote them directly so that I don't mangle it 
Yeah. The narrator here does not say this is too bad. He's like, we will summarize what we're saying. We will just say, <laughs> you know, that is the same. He doesn't yeah. actually say anything. He's, he's got greater points to make. So he's just like, this yeah. was saying that this is now actually going on and saying that that's my conclusion. Exactly. Zara's recalled that one of the hers yarks was her husband murdering Irma. Like, he's mm. literally said that, like, this is it. <laughs> I don't need to quote right. anything else. I think that what you say about him quoting could also, yeah, completely go the different way and be like, oh, yeah, well, he kind of said this, so, you know, that means that I can draw this conclusion when actually it, he, it was the total opposite of what he said and it was it wasn't the point of what he said. That's exactly. his argument. For all we know, he could be misrepresenting his conclusion. Right. But, yeah, you can draw your own conclusions about the context of what that says, but that that's the narrator's point. They don't need to say it. Okay. They don't need to say it. They don't need anyone to say it. Mm. They can just summarise it in their own way. And Zara's decision to come back is summarising even further. Mm-hmm. We hear it on a spectrum from, like, most interference to least least interference. Yeah. With an RSA of a most interference, then NRHC, then free NRHC, and then on the other end of the spectrum, direct free, and then free direct free, but least interference. Right. Because, like, direct free has a tiny bit of interference, because it's got a tag, it's got a um, reporting clause that tells mm-hmm. you how they said it. So you might, you know, it could be, I like this song to sigh. But, you know, she might just say, well, I didn't sigh. <laughs> but those are the words she said. that sort of spectrum and make things more direct or correct or more free or less free mm-hmm. in order to benefit how how your character comes across and how you perceive how the reader perceives yeah both the characters whose words are being summarized you could have someone you could have your narrator describe someone and always describe everything they said as shouting and then you meet them, and, 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 and you know, you're thinking, God, they shout all the time, they sound so sweet. And then you meet them, like your character meets them in person, they show up on the page in person, and they're deaf. And it's like, oh, this whole time. Yeah, it makes sense now. You know, yeah. Um, or something like that. You could have, um, or you could always have them slightly misquoted mm. and use that to sort of, oh, you know, you might talk about a writer or a philosopher and say, well, they say that summarize it and then read their actual work and it's like and read the the actual words they said and be like well hang on you've kind of interfered here like you've you've misrepresented their argument <laughs> and use it that way which i think is quite nice mm-hmm. so i think that's everything that's everything i've written down that i wanted to talk about this episode do you yeah. have any questions or anything that you would like to discuss further different every time and yeah, so it eventually it comes full circle and then it's the same again <laughs> and i really yeah. like that that idea of that the pronomeus and not hypronomeus Pron- something like that uh, yeah something it's like a made-up word shit <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. um so you said 
seven. Yeah, so even if you just read that part, that it's it's very interesting. It actually helps you a lot. It supports that kind of idea where you think of something and do it differently. Because you don't know any other things. You know, you, you don't know that it's been found, so you're like, Oh I found it and they're like, Yeah, I also found it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was that was really interesting. But I don't have anything additional to add to that just that okay. end of the read. And that brings us to the end of our discussion of Talon Ukma or Dispersion. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to come talk to us via Kim's website, pleaseholdborder.squarespace.com, or over on Instagram, that's at pleaseholdborderinsta, all one word, and join us next episode for The Truth About Guillaume Rules. Thanks for listening to Sparking Connections. For references and further information, find the show notes at anchor.fm slash sparkingconnections, or at my website, pleaseholdfor.squarespace.com where you will also find transcripts and links to find us elsewhere on the internet. If you have any questions or comments, then email us at sparkingconnectionspodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment below the episode.